Good evening. It's good to see everyone out this, uh, this evening. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. As uh, I announced earlier this morning, before we went through uh, that uh, lesson uh, that we went through over repentance, I wanted to just kind of give a preview of what we were going to be talking about tonight and maybe just uh, invite back those who possibly might be visiting with us. Uh, just to, again, give a preview about some of the things we'll be talking about. Obviously, we're going to be starting a series on the narrative of the Bible, and uh, I think that the best place to start is on page one in the beginning in Genesis chapter one. And um, so what I want to do is just begin this series really with more of a topical lesson about the book of Genesis and not just kind of an overview, but more so about what I would say is the importance and the need for Genesis, especially for Christians today. I think, um, and, and you don't have to look very far, but many today believe that Genesis, especially one, chapters 1 through 11, are just simply not literal, but allegorical uh, or uh, simply figurative language. And I, I think there's a pretty big push, and not just within the realm of, of, of the, you know, the secular world, but also within the religious world. There are many people who proclaim to be Christians, self-proclaimed Christians, who will give in to this idea that, uh, you know, when you, especially in Genesis chapter 1, when it talks about just the creation account. Essentially, you see the, the uh, seven days of creation, the six days of creation, and God rested on the seventh day. And what you have is many people coming in and saying, well, that probably is not you know, what God actually said happened. It's probably not literal. We can't necessarily look at that and say that those were six 24-hour days. How could it possibly be uh, everything we see be built and created in just six days alone? And so they look at that and they try to bring, I think, you know, uh, really evolution into religion and ultimately I think it just leads to disaster it's been said by others and I'll just repeat it but the Bible stands or falls with Genesis and, I, and as I was studying for this one of the lessons that I looked at was from a brother in Athens Alabama and I really appreciate him he's very thorough whenever he uh, gives a lesson and one of his lessons was titled the Bible stands or falls with Genesis and he went through every single book in the Bible in really 45 minutes and he went through at least one passage in each book that uses Genesis as a historical reference or use or just simply uh, cites a passage in Genesis uh, particularly within the first 11 chapters there because what you find is that many people would say well I mean Abraham is obviously literal you know Abraham obviously that's the cutoff because he's too important well then you look everything before that from Adam to Noah and you don't have that same standard. And so I would say the same thing, that I think the Bible stands or falls with our, our view on Genesis. How you view Genesis affects how you view the rest of the Bible. And I hope to show that as we go throughout the three points that I want to go through tonight. And it, really, all of these, I, I, as I went through these points, what I was doing was just going through a lot of arguments that I've heard, uh, whether it be personally or just online, as I've been uh, watching debates and listening to uh, just more popular commentators on these kinds of subjects, and especially within the religious world, I wanted to see what their arguments were. 
um, and, and not so much the, the secular world. I wanted to see what people who say they are Christians, I wanted to see what they had to say about the creation account, what God says happened, and then trying to bring uh, evolution into this. The, the term you might hear uh, often is theistic evolution, and I just, I, I, I just don't think that that I don't think that those two words uh, really go together and I want to make that point tonight so the first question that I want to uh, really focus on is really focused around language uh, one of the main arguments that I think we hear today is the idea specifically on literal versus figurative language and as we were just talking about what you find is in the first 11 chapters that I mean they draw a line they say that is figurative and then the rest of everything else in Genesis well that's literal my first question is, what's the standard behind that? What is, what's the standard between what is literal and what is figurative or allegorical? Uh, honestly, it, it doesn't really make sense as you get to Genesis chapter 5 or Genesis chapter 10, and it's going through genealogies. If you are looking at figurative language, allegorical language, what is the point of going through the line of Adam or the line of Seth or the line of Noah? And, and, and just, just those chapters alone are kind of pointless, moot, if you try to say that all of these things, well, they really don't, uh, you're not supposed to take them literally, you're not supposed to take them seriously. There's a deeper meaning. But all throughout, rather, what we find is that God is really setting up his story, as we've already mentioned in several lessons past. From the very beginning, God is telling his story. And he is trying to tell us how he is going to bring about this, this plan of redemption for mankind. From the very beginning in the Genesis chapter 3, you see that prophecy given that he will send a savior. Someone who the serpent will bite his heel, but he'll crush his head, the serpent's head. And so from the very beginning, what you find is that plan being set in motion and God not being idle from the very beginning of time, but rather uh, from the garden and onwards. He is steadily pressing towards that goal. Now, with all that being said, coming back to that standard, that's a question that I think they need to answer. The people that would say this is figurative or allegorical language. You have to be able to respond and say, this is why I draw the line here. Right at chapter, between chapters 11 and chapter 12. This is why I think that Adam and Noah, they, we don't really have to take them as seriously. Abraham, of course. I was listening to one uh, uh, commentator I like to listen to, and he, he's actually uh, an, Orthodox, an Orthodox Jew, and he was just going through some of the arguments here, and I'm going to bring more up in just a moment, but one of the things that he was very, very strong about is, well, of course, Abraham, he can't be figurative. Well, because there's too much, there's too much doctrine based upon him. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty convenient. And I, I would just say, I think a lot of the arguments you hear are convenient. They're arguments based on convenience, not really stone-cold facts. Over in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, I just wanted to remind ourselves of the wisdom that's spoken here. In Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So we read that passage, and I just want to ask the question again. Who is it that draws, draws the line again? Is it man or is it God? Has it ever been man that gets to decide this is what we're going to actually regard as truth, and this is what we're going to regard as really unnecessary uh, commandments? 
I think that's what the Jews were ultimately guilty of when, when Paul's writing to them. What he's essentially saying is, I think throughout the book of Romans is, listen, it's not that you didn't care about the law at all. It's that you cared about certain aspects of the law more than others. You held certain aspects of the law very highly, but these others you just forgot about. And so ultimately, you didn't follow the commandments of the Lord. And I think it's kind of the same way when people come in and they try to say, well, this is a part that I just maybe, maybe I personally, I just don't understand. And so therefore it can't be literal. Or you come in and not just say that you just don't understand it, but you look at the science behind uh, what the scientific field says about, you know, how we came to be. And you're just, well, that just does not connect with what God says. And we're going to talk about that. That's going to be the last point. But we have to be careful that we don't get into the mindset of, well, well, since I don't understand it. Or since I don't think that this really uh, makes much, much sense with, you know, what somebody else is telling me. Well, then I'm just going to change. I'm going to change ultimately the standard. The standard is always God. And we can't forget that. Well, going beyond that, I, I just want to ask the very simple question. Is the language that we read through, is it really that confusing? When you read in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, tell you know, after services, don't tell me right now, but after services, let me know if this really does seem that confusing because I, I really am sincerely curious. But it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. One day. So there we have the first day in all of creation, the first day of, of when time begins. Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's, you know, the simplest of ideas to think about how, think about the eternal God and how he began this physical realm that we inhabit today. But at the same time, though that may be a little bit complicated to fully wrap our minds around, it's still very clear what God is actually saying, right? He says this, I said, let there be light. And guess what? Light came from my word, from the power of my word. And there was morning and there was evening, and that was one day. But then you come in and somebody will, will this is one of the arguments that I heard, somebody comes in and they say, well, you look at the word day, and a day could mean a few different things. A day could mean, you know, like an age, or, or, or in Genesis chapter 3, you, when God's, or, or Genesis chapter 2, when God says, if you eat of the, tree of the, free, uh, the, eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will surely die. And so there's a few different instances where the word day is used, and maybe it doesn't necessarily mean a 24-hour day. And so when you go throughout the creation account, what it looks like to me is, well... This just has to be one of those age-long things, which means it's millions and millions of years old. Now, first of all, let me just ask the question, can it also mean just a regular day, the way we, you know, the way we usually use the word? Yeah, it can. You're bringing something into the actual context here. You're going outside and bringing something in, rather than just taking what God has told us and taking that at face value. But, but I will just say, there, I, I tried to look up this Hebrew word, yom, I believe that's how you translate it. But I tried to look it up in the, some software, the Bible software that I have. There was like 2,367 usages of that word alone throughout the Old Testament, that Hebrew word. I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you, I didn't get through it all. But I went through quite a bit. And I tried to read verse after verse after verse that this, uh, that this word was used and let me just say right off the bat most of the time it did just mean what we think a day means just a regular 24-hour day 
And then other times, it, I did see it used uh, in such a way where it says, well, you know, in, in the later days of Abraham or in the later days of Sarah, it would be used in that kind of way, basically just saying you know, when they were old. And so, yes, maybe a, a day can be used more than just in a 24-hour period. But even within the context, when you go throughout those passages, it is so very clear just from the context what is being discussed. You can tell what is being talked about. That, um, uh, there was one verse that was translated, talking about Abraham, that, uh, and it used the word, the English translation was age. Same Hebrew word. But ultimately what it was saying was, again, in the later days of Abraham, as we just said a moment ago. And so I, you look at something like that, and it's pretty clear what's actually got, what God is trying to communicate there with that same word. And so I don't think it's as confusing as people sometimes give it credit for. Well, we just can't understand what this possibly means. Yeah, we can because generally, when you, when you ask, what is the definition of the word day? You say, you know, basically a 24-hour period. That's just the general response. And I even looked it up on Google just to see what their first definition. And the first definition that came up was a 24-hour day with morning and evening. And what does it say in the first five verses of Genesis chapter 1? God called the, day light, the, the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. One day. And so, again, I just... I look at just the text, and it seems very just forthright about the whole thing. Well, some others would, would look at this and say, well, this question every now and then could come up. They try to make a general, a general uh, question or approach at this, and they just say, well, could God have used evolution? Well, I guess, I guess he could have. But what did it actually say? You don't even have to ask the question because he very clearly has already said this was one day. And then he goes throughout the rest of creation when he, brings, uh, when he creates the dry, uh, the dry land arises from the waters and he creates the firmament, the heavens, and then he creates the vegetation and the animals and man. And each time he goes through, there was evening, there was night, there was one day. So, again, when you just look at the context, I think it's very clear and we don't have to come into it thinking, well... Is there, is there really more being talked about here? I don't think so. Well, um, going further beyond that, just look at what God has actually said outright, even beyond the book of Genesis. Over in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 11, as he's giving the Ten Commandments, he, he's giving the commandment about the Sabbath, and how they need to honor the Sabbath. And as he's giving those rules, he gives a reason. In verse 11, he says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again, just reading that sentence by itself, does it seem like he's talking about billions and billions of years? Does the word year even come into your mind when you see, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth? No. Right off the bat, we go straight to the standard. In six literal days, God created the heavens and the earth. And so just from what God says, even beyond Genesis, what we find is uh, that that connects with what we, we've been talking about thus far. Over in Psalm 104, going, beyond, going even further, this is continually accepted as um, a historical narrative throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Psalm 104, beginning in verse 5, it says, He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. Now, I'll just say, as you go throughout just those few verses alone in Psalm 104, uh, 104, that is going through the days of creation. 
And I love, especially in verse 7, what does he say? At your rebuke, the waters fled at your word. That's how powerful God's word is. And so people come into this and they say, well, I mean, this just, this just doesn't make sense. How could you literally have everything that you see around you come out of nothing with just, in just this amount of time? Well, I don't know what the big deal is. You're literally acknowledging and admitting, like I am, that everything came into existence through a word. So what, what's the big jump here? We're already saying that we're talking about an all-powerful God. So what's the big deal? Why is it that we have to bring uh, something from outside of uh, the context into what God has actually said? Going further in Psalm 104, skipping down to verse 24, not only has he created it by his word, but creation continues to rely on him. In verse 24, it says, O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. Again, just continuing with, that, with, with uh, that creation account, this notion that by God's power, by his word, everything was created. And still by his, his, continual, uh, by his continual maintenance, it all stands. When God stops, everything stops. And without him, the world cannot keep, continue to spin. But you have theistic evolution, which, which I think would just imply, maybe you wouldn't have a proponent of this actually say, say this out loud, but what it implies is God does not intervene in that way. He intervened every now and then, but so that way we could naturally progress over millions of years from primordial soup into apes, into bunnies, into humans. And I just don't understand that. And I may be being a bit reductive there. But that's essentially what you have. And they use big words to try and trick you into thinking that this is an intellectual thought and you could never uh, come to this by, pure, by just simply pure speculation. This is completely thought through, but when you actually look at what these animals are, that's what, that's what it looks like. Drastic jumps, and it makes no sense. But it, I, would, I would say I think it is the more reasonable approach to say that God created man the way he said he created man. Um, but... Going beyond that, look at, just, look at the connections of Jesus with Genesis. First of all, in Luke chapter 3, in verses 23 through 38, we're not going to read all of that, but in, in Luke chapter 3, Luke makes the point to go through the genealogy of Jesus, and he goes from Jesus all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Moses, or uh, all the way back to Judah, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam. And then what, how does he end that genealogy? To Adam, the son of God. And I think the, one of the reasons he makes this uh, distinction is just to let, make sure everyone knows in every way possible, Jesus does even go all the way back to God from the beginning. And in more ways than just through this genealogy. But even here, when it comes to uh, the, the, the ancestors of Jesus, he, he's rooted all the way back to creation. And again, what is the point of adding these genealogies <laughs> Going all the way back to Noah and to, and, and to Adam and, and with all, everything within those generations. What's the point of going that far if, they're, if they really mean nothing? 
if all they were were just metaphors. Now, let me just say, I am not, as I go through this first point, I'm not saying that, that the Bible doesn't use figurative language. It, it does. And sometimes uh, the psalm, especially the psalmist, they'll use figurative language to try and just give a description of what God's glory could possibly look like. It's greater than we can even fathom. And I understand that that's how we communicate sometimes with figurative language. That way, maybe we can understand uh, uh, just what we initially could not in, in uh, physical terms. Now, this is something that we're going to look at in the last point. But I, I, don't think that, I don't think that literal things necessarily have to be natural. I think that you can have uh, even the supernatural uh, be literal. And we'll get more into that as we go on. But going beyond just Luke chapter 3 and the genealogies, when asked about divorce, when Jesus is approached and asked about divorce from the uh, law of Moses, Jesus, I think, doesn't even start with Moses. But look at what, what is said. They, they, they come up to, to Jesus and they ask him about whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, look where, he, uh, look where he goes. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so we ask them a question because they want to know about the, you know, the law of Moses. What, what about, how do we reconcile this? Moses tells us to give a certificate of divorce, and they want to know if it's lawful. Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning. He goes all the way back to creation to make a point about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I think that that's very uh, striking to say the least. But what you, happens if you make everything from Genesis 1 through 11 figurative or metaphorical or allegorical rather, then what you have is Jesus really con making just kind of a, a, a weak connection. Well, what does that mean? We really don't know because all it is is allegory and no one wants to give the deeper meaning here. And so uh, I think it, it causes a lot of issues when you start making these connections. Going over to Matthew chapter 24 very quickly, he, quote, he starts talking about the judgment uh, of the Son of Man, and he says it's going to be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, let me just give you an example of what it could look like if people start to take, you know, Noah, the flood, and people do take the flood as a figurative, maybe even a local flood instead of a worldwide flood. So Jesus connects the flood with his judgment. So what does this mean if we take it figuratively like some would in, in the religious world? Well, what that means is because the flood was figurative, and that was maybe a local flood and instead of a worldwide flood, we could br maybe bring that over to Jesus' judgment. He's comparing it to his own. And so we could look at Jesus' judgment and look at that final judgment that we always talk about. And maybe, just maybe, that's figurative. Maybe it's not as, as substantial. Maybe it's not as conclusive as we tend to you know, think as we come to the scriptures. Because, hey, Noah's figurative. And it's all allegorical. So maybe there's a deeper meaning here. And so what I want to show just with uh, these few examples here is that what we find is Jesus often quotes Genesis not as just, uh, you know, Aesop's fables, but as historical narrative. And if Jesus is quoting it that way, I don't understand why self-proclaimed Christians are not quoting it the same way. Well, moving on to the next point, 
Not only do people question the language that is used, but they also question the chronology. And I think that maybe this is one of the silliest arguments, uh, one of the sillier arguments that, that is given when it comes to this. They'll, they'll talk about just the order of creation. And they'll say that maybe there's some inconsistencies. So let's just ask the question, are there really any inconsistencies with the creation account? Back to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. It says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. He saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. And so what you have is light being given into, coming into the universe. And there was day and night. But then you skip all the way down to verse 14 in Genesis chapter 1. Remember, that was on the first day. But in verse 14, on the fourth day, it says that God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the great light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Now, each time uh, as you go throughout the days of, of creation and previously here, it keeps saying that there was evening and there was a morning. Now, someone comes in and they say, well, first of all, how does that even make sense? You have light coming in before the sun even exists, before God creates the light. And again, some, this, I'm not just trying to take... I'm not just trying to take maybe small or silly arguments and just use them as straw man arguments. What I'm doing is taking arguments that I've heard from, I would say, very intelligent people within, who would call themselves religious. And, and, and they would use these arguments to say it just doesn't make sense to be literal. Well, let's just, let's just look deep, a little bit deeper into this. If this is really, let's see if this is really an inconsistency. So you have light in the first day, but then you have the sun coming into existence, finally being created in the fourth day. Is there an inconsistency here? First of all, let me just say that evolution says the sun had to be there first. God comes in and says otherwise. And so immediately there's a disconnect, and you're going to have to say that one is wrong and one is right. So just from the outset, you're, you're kind of faced with a dilemma there if you're trying to bring evolution into the creation account. But again, just looking at this, if we're going to actually answer the question, where could the light possibly have come from? Any guesses? There was no sun and there was no moon. So how was there day and night? How was there light being given to, the whole, to all of creation? Could it be, and I'm just spitballing, but could it be that it came from the very source of light? Over in Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 22. And again, I know that the, uh, much in Revelation, uh, much in Revelation is, is apocalyptic language, and some of it is more difficult to understand than other parts. But especially here, uh, I, I think it kind of helps us when we're uh, asking these questions. Revelation chapter 21, at the very end of the story. Beginning in verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so there's a lot of fulfillments and culminations here at the very end of the story. In verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, you could, some, I guess somebody could look at this passage and say, well... Just, I mean, again, apocalyptic language. This is probably just metaphorical in the same way. But uh, first of all, does it, is that absolutely necessary? Do you come to this? Is that a forced conclusion? 
Or is that you forcing the conclusion? Well, let's just look at another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is in the middle of, of something Paul is telling Timothy. But as he's talking about God, he says, God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, I mean, even here, it could, I guess it could be figurative language. I guess it could just be another allegory that he dwells in unapproachable light. Well, what about the part where it says that he possesses immortality? Are we going to say that that's figurative? Or are we going to draw the line in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a thought? You could look at James chapter 1 and verse 17 where it talks about God being the father of lights. That every perfect and good gift comes from him, the father of lights. You could go to 1 John in chapter 2 and verse 5 where it says that God is light. And I know that, it also, that we could go in 1 John and look and see another verse that where it says God is love. And let me just say, I, complete, I agree with that completely in both aspects. I think, how do you define love? You look at God. There's no other standard. In the same way that we, that's how we define good, that's how we define purity, that's how we define holiness, is looking to God. In the same way, I think you find it with light. And I think uh, over in 2 Corinthians, very quickly, 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think he uses this literal reality to make some pretty important, uh, impactful applications when it comes to Jesus in our own lives. In verse 3, it says uh, of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves... Uh, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine, or light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so, I, I think Paul very clearly is using that literal historical narrative to make an even more important case. The same God that said, let light shine out of darkness, and out of nothing but his word, there was obedience. <laughs> out of nothing but his word, just from the power of his word, light shone. In the same way, we, uh, he, he makes a spiritual application when Jesus comes into our lives as Christians. Uh, again, back to Psalm 104, in the first two verses, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching he out heaven like a tent curtain. I will just say, this, we can still go back to some of the idea that we talked about in the previous point where when it just comes to language and figurative language, people will say, when, when talking about figurative language, that it's really hard to tell, you know, even within the context, it's really hard to tell what is it exactly is being talked about. First of all, I just don't think that's the case. I think it's much more simple than people give credit. But then beyond that, figurative language is always based on you know, the original literal definition of whatever you know, speech you're using. Uh, in the same way as we were talking about with a day, immediately you think of that standard of e morning and evening. You have one day, a 24-hour period. It can mean other things, but in those figurative usages, it always is based on the literal translation. But context, I think, is very helpful, and I think we can very simply uh, find what the point that God is making um, well, at least more simply than many people give credit. Well, going back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. 
Again, still within this idea of the chronology of, of, you know, the sequence of events at the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. In verses 4 through 25, what you have is essentially uh, kind of uh, more information given about, and there's maybe a couple uh, ideas of what this could be. It could just be that God is, is explaining the, the Garden of Eden being cultivated or created, or it could just be that God is giving more information in the days of creation. I think either one of those is, is valid. It kind of looks like he's giving more information about those days of creation, and specifically he's giving more attention to one thing in particular. But we'll come back to that in just a moment. But when you look at the, uh, this extra account given more, all this information, uh, again, there was a commentator that I was listening to, and it, it, uh, it, he was an Orthodox Jew, and he basically just asked the question, making this defense, he said, why does God go back and give more information on the sixth day, or, or in chapter 2? Why does he bother to tell the story twice if there really is no allegory or deeper meaning to it? The main question that I want to ask whenever people say something like that is, okay, Let's concede that maybe it is allegorical. What's the deeper meaning? Let me just tell you, whenever they say that they think there is deeper meaning there, they will never give you what that deeper meaning is. And so really, they're just giving, they're not really answering anything. They're just giving more questions. I think this is allegorical. Okay, well, what is that supposed to teach us? I have no idea. Well, then what's the point? Why is it so important? Why is it so important to make what God has clearly uh, spoken figurative if you don't even have a reason for it. And ultimately, I think that there isn't much reason for it. So I, I, I would just say when it comes to some of these questions, not every one of them deserve the same level of, for lack of a better word, respect. Because I, I just don't think many of these are thought fully all the way through. So we need to keep that in mind, that sometimes people will use intellectual language to try and make their reason, you know, their reason for taking this as figurative or allegorical. They'll try to make it sound like they've gotten to this point, gotten to this conclusion by thinking it all the way through. But then you just ask a simple question and, and generally it can't be answered. And so we, we need to scrutinize those. Um, we need to seriously scrutinize those arguments when they're made so that way we can actually get to the conclusion what is it that what is the main point here what is the reason why we're going forward with this well finally with this point taking a timeline other than God's I think creates doctrinal just catastrophe you go over to a, a passage like Romans chapter 5 and it talks about how death enters creation how death enters uh, or how death begins to infect and corrupt God's crown jewel of creation being man over in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So what does he say? Well, death reigned from Adam. It started in, with Adam in the beginning. And it goes all the way to Moses, even those who are under the law of Moses. And that spanned a very lengthy portion of time. And so what, he's, what Paul, uh, I think, repeats from the lessons of the Old Testament is that's where death infects and corrupts man at the very beginning. What evolution says is, no, what you have is a continual repetitive progression of death, you know, everywhere and invading man. But then you get to Adam and, and all of a sudden, you know randomly, arbitrarily, there is some more significance to this death. 
Well, let me just say that that just goes right against the word of God. You look in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and God says that he made everything good, very good. And he could, he had such a relationship with, he had created man so well that he could walk in the garden with Adam and Eve in the very beginning. But it was only after the fact that they sinned. It was after the fact that they invited shame upon themselves and they were no longer pure or, or, or holy in that regard that God had created them to be. It was then that God separates. And he says that that death is going to continue and, and that death corrupts the rest of creation. Not just man, but the rest of, of everything that we see. And I think you can look, you can look at the, all the curses within Genesis chapter 3 and just find how uh, invasive that penalty was. But all of that just to say, in, in just, with just one example, I think that if you take this approach, what it does is create so many more issues, so many more problems that you're going to have to address. Uh, especially when it comes to just plain doctrine that we find throughout the Bible. Well, finally, I think we need to ask a question of where are we going to for the answers? Uh, one of the things that I heard a lot when I was listening through uh, some debates and some uh, podcasts, of, uh, just talking through some of these things, trying to make an argument for theistic evolution, one guy just said for about 10 minutes, what you're doing is you're pitting science against reason. You're, putting, you're pitting science against faith against religion. And, and he, he, he really leaned in on this for a good long while, and he said, what you're doing is you're making it that much harder for an unbeliever after seeing all of these things in our science textbooks from grade school and upward, you're making it that much harder on them to become a Christian. And when he said that, I was like, well, I mean, I think that's been a part of the tactic of Satan for a very long time. He wants you to look around, and he wants you to look at the suffering and the evil, and he wants you to look around at wood and stone and think, oh, there's something there. There's something to worship. He's always done that since the very beginning. This isn't necessarily new, and so I'm not sure exactly what that, what that is supposed to prove. But to what I was saying um, a moment ago, I don't think, as we look throughout the creation account, and as we try to look at what science says and, and make that connect with, with what the Bible says, it doesn't have to be natural to be literal. And what I mean by that is there is many things throughout the Bible that just cannot be explained by science. I'll, I'll just say science is completely unequipped to explain God. Science is really just a study of natural cause and effect, right? That's all that science can prove. That's all that science can study. And, and, and what you have with God is something that is not even unnatural, but he is supernatural. And what that means is he transcends nature. When you talk about a miracle, that's not just something that happens every, every now and then. When the donkey spoke to Balaam in Numbers chapter 22, there's, you know, there's a reason that we look at that and say, you know, that's a bit off. That doesn't happen every day. You're right, it doesn't. It's not natural. And as you look at men being uh, brought back from the dead, and as you look at paralyzed men being able to immediately walk up, pick up their bed, and walk away after meeting God, after meeting God manifested in the flesh, that doesn't happen every day. And those happen specifically, as we said uh, earlier this morning, to point people to God to say, this, this truly is Jehovah God, the Creator, the Almighty. That's the whole point of miracles. And so people try to explain those things away and they try to, they try to really explain 
ultimately God through these things, and you just cannot do that. He is a supernatural being. And in the same way that he is a supernatural being, he created everything material, all the physical things that we see and can touch. All of these things, he created it in a supernatural way. What you see at the very beginning is some of the most beautiful miracles throughout the Bible. God creates everything with just his word. That's a miracle. Now, all of that just to say, uh, let's go back to, uh, to Romans 4 very quickly. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, this is talking about Abraham specifically. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. It says, For this reason uh, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which, he, which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And from the very beginning of that uh, story, even to the point where Abraham is going to actually kill his son, Isaac, the son of promise, the son that God had actually given to him, Abraham was going to go forward with that. And the, but the reason he could is because he knew he had faith in the God who could bring back people back from the dead, who could give life once again. Now, all of that just to say, again, that's not a natural thing, but rather a supernatural thing. Abraham was able to believe in, uh, that God could do these things because God is the one who put these physical laws into place. And as we were talking about earlier with miracles, he can bend those physical laws to his will just in looking at the exodus and looking at the, the Israel passing through the Red Sea. Quite an amazing feat and not something that you can explain through science by no means. Well, moving on from that, I, just the main point of this, this entire lesson, we need to ask where are we going for the answers or who are we asking for the answers? Even when, when scientists speak, it, tend, it, it, it doesn't lead people to the proper conclusions. We can look at all of these fossil records. We can look at the dating of all of these bones. And, you know, again, from elementary school, you get into these textbooks that are not a study of God and a study of the beautiful and amazing, awesome things that God can do, but rather it's just explaining the things that we can do and really the things that we are just limited so much that we cannot do. And yet you have these, these textbooks trying to say that, well... Everything came from uh, really a process that we can't even fully uh, that we can't even fully prove ourselves because we weren't there in the first place. But I would just say some of the arguments that I've heard from even uh, religious people, it sounds a lot like arguments that that unbelievers would make when it comes to things even like abortion. We we wouldn't go to science and arguments against abortion because ultimately, honest scientists say, well, it's living tissue. We understand that, but it's not viable. Well, guess what? Science has spoken, hasn't it? 
And so we we got to take this and we got to bring it into the Bible. No, we never we know we won't do that with abortion when we're talking about the sanctity of that of that little baby's life. And yet when we come over to creation, we think, oh, we got to take everything that is said and we got to somehow make this work. Since when are we trying to make all of the presumptions and all of the modern sensibilities of man work with what God has already given us? We understand just from the laws of physics, something can't come from nothing. Yet evolution is widely espoused, though it leaves that issue completely unaddressed and unanswered. Ultimately, something's still got to come from something else. Even at the Big Bang, there's got to be materials there to make that happen. The Bible gives an answer, though. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things which are visible. And, and we'll go to Romans uh, chapter 1 in just a moment. But I, uh, just looking at that point alone, God actually gives us an answer. Now, we may not be able to look at that kind of power and, and fully fathom what that would physically look like. But we can at least understand what the Bible clearly says. We, we go to God first, and if something doesn't add up, we don't say it's because God was off. We don't say it's because maybe, well... God was just trying to help us understand what, you know, Richard Dawkins was going to say about biology today. No, we go to God first. And, and going on to the next point, Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. Even though all men, even though all men would say that that just simply cannot be, that this creation account must be false, that it has to be figurative, even if everyone that we knew who was a self-proclaimed Christian came to the conclusion that the Bible is wrong on this, may all men be found a liar and God be found faithful. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world says. No matter what, what does the Bible actually say? That's all that matters. That's the source of truth. No matter what, though, what we find is that the Bible makes clear from Old Testament to the New Testament that God created everything. Over in Hebrews chapter 11, or sorry, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1, very quickly. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, it says, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they also will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Now, I really like that passage because you have a lot of people saying today, well, what you find is that we're just continuing to evolve. And even our planet, even Earth, and the rest of the solar system, it's just continuing to evolve. But really, that doesn't really make sense because what you find is that everything is actually devolving to a degree. Everything is actually dying instead of just expanding and, and adapting into the next form of life. And God makes that claim all the way back in the first century from the Hebrew writer, this will have an end. I won't. But this natural thing, it will. And so you look to the Bible, you don't have to go very far. God gives us these answers. It's just a matter of whether we're willing to listen. Even in just thinking about this idea, even theistic evolutionists... That's a hard uh, name to say. But even people that believe in theistic evolution, they will admit that at some point, everything was created by God. It's not just a matter of, well, God got the ball rolling, and then by a natural progression, everything came to be. Even at some point, they will say, God is the ultimate cause. He's the one that brought everything to life. 
What they've done is just made an arbitrary, unnecessary stance on the win. And I still don't understand what the reasoning is behind it. What, and I would just ask, what would it have accomplished if God had created everything in its infancy? What if God had created the garden for man to cultivate and then he created Adam and Eve as just babies? Would they have been able to do the work that God had set for them to do? No. Why? Because they're incapable of it. They're babies. And if evolution is correct, at some point everything was in its infancy. And that can't make sense because how is it going to survive in each stage? Again, God gives us an answer there. And, it's, and I think it's the... I think ultimately the reason that people try to bring this in is because, back to what we were saying a moment ago, I think people are trying to make it easier for people who want to bring in a worldly mindset, who want to bring in a secular mindset into their religion. Because when you do that, you say, well, let's look at these science textbooks. Let's look at what Richard Dawkins has to say. We're going to make things, we're going to open the field up so that way people don't feel as, as estranged from the Bible. And we're going to make them feel like it actually is a logical book. It is a logical book. Who said it wasn't? Why is it that we think that it's not reasonable? Well, maybe it's just a lack of faith that's keeping us from that confidence and the assurance that God thinks that or that God says that we should have in his word. I'll just say people will always try to come in and confuse what God has revealed but, but let me just reemphasize that God means what he says. And I don't know if I've made the case very well tonight. But he is not a God of confusion. And with that being said, from creation to the plan of salvation, from creation to how we uh, become more like Christ, God has been very clear. Do you trust him when he says what he does? Do you trust him when he says that he has created the universe and he did so perfectly? If you do, that's good. How about this? Do you trust when he says that without him, you will lose ultimately, that you cannot attain salvation without a relationship with him? Well, again, if your answer is, I know that I need him, that's good. Final question. Do you trust him when he says that he can save you? And are you willing to put your faith in him. And that means not just, I believe, but that you are giving a whole allegiance to him in that relationship. If you are willing to do that this evening, we would love to help you in that. If you want to become a Christian and you want to become a disciple of Christ, look more like him, even if you are too uh, maybe worried about coming before a whole group of people trying to ask about how to become a Christian after the services, please come to one of us and let us help you in that. If you're a Christian, you've been struggling. And maybe you've been struggling with your faith just in some of the things that we've talked about tonight. Again, I, don't, I probably didn't make the case as strongly as I could have. And there's a lot of other things that we can talk about. But I hope that you will utilize the blessings that God has given you, the family that God has given you through Christ. And you will let them build you up. Let us help build each other up. So that way we can hold each other's hands, walk each other to heaven, help each other get to heaven. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.